Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. everyone and welcome to another episode of the most notorious podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. If you hear a little bit of a change in my voice, I've been suffering from a cold the last few days. I think I'm right at the tail end, but uh, bear with me if you notice a difference. I can certainly hear it. So before I begin, I want to mention a few of my new patrons on patreon.com that have generously begun supporting me on the newshound level. And with that great help comes a shout-out on the show. First, a big thank you to Emma from Nairobi, Kenya. She is a big fan of Ellen Polson, especially, who, by the way, will be a three-peat guest in the near future. John has also recently joined the fold, listening from the beautiful and frigid Greeker Norway. I was lucky enough to find myself in Norway last year and and enjoyed the scenery and the hospitality tremendously. Appreciate it so much, John. And I can't forget Harry tuning in from picturesque Vale, Arizona, known for the nearby Colossal Cave Mountain Park. You are a champion, sir. I have more shout-outs coming next week. Oh, and if you are interested in more information about how you can help through Patreon, go to p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash most notorious and let's get on to the show. So glad to have as my guest today, Life Pedersen. He is a freelance writer, humorist, tourism professional, and travel journalist who has written extensively for the Lonely Planet Travel Guides. He is also the author of Backpacking with Dracula, On the Trail of Vlad the Impaler, Dracula, and the Vampire He Inspired. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So so where did your fascination with Dracula first come from? 
Well, I, I was actually uh, living in Romania. I I'd never even read the the Dracula novel, and I only had like most people, I only had like passing knowledge that Dracula was a real life person back in the 15th century. And you know what you do read if you just read the the top level stuff. He was a sadist and crazy <laughs> and kind of a jerk. But you know, living in Romania and then uh, subsequently uh, researching multiple editions of the Lonely Planet Guide to Romania, I got deeper into the history. Uh, there's a lot of surviving sites in Romania that are associated with Dracula because you know this is Europe and things are centuries old everywhere you look. So as as I got deeper and deeper into that and visited the sites associated with him more and more, it just started doing a little more digging. I finally read the novel. And then, you know, I just thought after I ended up spending a cumulative two years in Romania and and I had this topic that I was getting deeper into, I thought, well, it's about time life to uh, to write your first travel memoir. And so here I am. And then it kind of morphed into more history than travel memoir. But uh, nonetheless, here we are. So I'd like to start by asking you about the geography of the area. Romania, Transylvania, I'd love it if you could explain where they are and how these areas were especially important in the 15th century, which is where our story takes place. Sure. Well, so Romania, it's on the eastern side of Eastern Europe. So, you know, it touches uh, the Black Sea and uh, its neighbors are Bulgaria to the south and Ukraine to the north and, and Moldova sort of to the northeast and to the west is Hungary. So, yeah, in the 15th century, there was no Romania, of course. It was just a bunch of kingdoms and principalities and things like that. So the real Dracula, the Vlad the Impaler, wasn't actually from Transylvania. He was Prince of Wallachia, which is a principality uh, at the time that was south of Transylvania. Dracula spent plenty of time in Transylvania, but uh, he he was the Prince of Wallachia, and that was his, his stomping grounds and the area that he was desperately trying to defend against some very powerful neighbors. Uh, at the time, Wallachia was like a little tiny grape in the in the middle of a tug of war between two you know giant dogs. That was there was the Ottoman Empire to the south and and to the east, and they were you know they had just conquered Constantinople. They were at the height of their power and, and terrifying. And, you know, little Wallachia is just right there. After after they rolled over B- Bulgaria, Wallachia was definitely feeling the stress. And then to the northwest was the Kingdom of Hungary. And then also the Roman Empire beyond that, and, and of course, Christian Europe. But, um, you know, in, in the 15th century, Wallachia was kind of a, I guess, by Christian Europe standards, it was just, you know, this little hillbilly backwater part of Europe, you know, and they were vaguely aware of things. They were, you know, obviously aware that the Ottoman Empire was growing in strength and had pretty specific plans to roll into Christian Europe and absorb all that. But a a little place like Wallachia was was not on very many people's radar at the time, but very quickly they became so because, like I said, they were right on the doorstep of Christian Europe and the Ottoman Empire was standing on the doorstep and getting ready to stomp all over them on their way into Transylvania and then off continuing into the Kingdom of Hungary. So, you know, while Wallachia was kind of on its own over in this corner, toe-to-toe with one of the largest military forces in Europe at the time, they didn't have a whole lot of support because it was just, you know, it's kind of like us thinking about Guam right now. It's just like so far away and there was things more important that were happening right in, in everybody's own little yard. And, and so in the beginning in particular, um, Wallachia had a little trouble getting other folks riled up and understanding the, the urgency of what 
Ottoman Empire, you know, rolling over them and and going into Transylvania, what the the, the ramifications for that for all of Europe meant. So uh, they were in a very tough spot, to put it lightly, and um, they didn't have a whole lot of choice about the matter. They they had to sign an agreement of partnership with the Ottoman Empire because it was either that or get annihilated. So they in the beginning, Dracula and his father and grandfather before them, they had these arrangements with the Ottoman Empire where they would be autonomous, but they were effectively you know an Ottoman distant territory and they you know they had to pay annual dues to the Ottoman Empire and for a while there they were shipping off all of their young strong men to be absorbed into the into their military so uh, before Dracula came along they were definitely under the heel and then for a time after while Dracula was getting his act together still under the heel and then Dracula was the first real resistance to the Ottoman Empire uh, on behalf of all of Christian Europe so he which is why he was suddenly thrust into the limelight yeah, it's a fascinating story. Uh, Vlad Dracula, he got dragged into all of this as a kid. He, he had a far busier childhood than any of us could ever imagine <laughs> experiencing. Yeah, um, and that's, you know, it, it's hard to parse history uh, from 500 years ago, especially when it's told by so many different people with so many different biases. But the generally uh, agreed upon theory is that Dracula was a normal kid and turned into a uh, inconsolable, sullen teenager and then a psychopath because he spent most of that time as a, let's say, a guest of the Ottoman Empire. It was kind of a study abroad slash hostage situation that he was caught into his father Vlad Dracul the uh, second so first of all there's that confusion right there his father was Vlad Dracul and then we have Vlad Dracula the third so the the name mix-ups are were constant for me while I was researching this book and and writing the book but his father Vlad Dracul as part of one of many agreements with the Ottoman Empire, he uh, he signed that the agreements uh, re-upping their their allegiance to the Ottomans. And since the Sultan wasn't entirely sure that Vlad Dracul was going to stay loyal, he decided to take Vlad's two oldest sons. Uh, so that's Vlad Dracula and. Radu, and he kept them <laughs> in his court. And, you know, they, they were sort of prisoners, but they were treated very well. You know, they got a normal, very high-level education appropriate for royalty. And so they, they learned history and philosophy. You know, they had Greek scholars as teachers. They learned horsemanship and, and fighting and weapons and, you know, just the kind of the not necessarily what we would have gotten in our high school days, but what was common for children of a certain stature to be taught uh, as they were growing up, sort of in a way being you know prepared for their future as as leader of something. But equally, he was a kind of he he wasn't super thrilled about his arrangements there, and he was rebellious, and uh, so he was punished a lot. And in the 15th century, punishment was almost always physical, although. I'm sure there was plenty of psychological torture as well. And I think just being away from home for so long in a in an unfamiliar location where, especially in the beginning, they didn't understand what people were saying around them and the, the threat constantly of them being punished for something that their father might do, you know, way far away in Wallachia was a stressful time for them. And, you know, Radu sort of rolled with the punches and he was fortunate in that he was handsome and friendly and everybody liked him, but Dracula was neither of those things. And so he, uh, he definitely suffered extravagantly. And that's uh, the, the overriding theory of how he went from normal kid to psychopath. So the Sultan, in having these two boys as hostages, 
was really able to leverage things into his favor. Their father was pretty desperate to get them back, or at least not have them killed, and was willing to make a lot of concessions. Exactly. And, you know, Vlad had a lot to lose. I mean, his his sons being hostages was only just a, a part of that, you know, his his kingdom that he'd fought so hard to to maintain and, and, and hold because of there there were so many challenges to to his rule over time. And funny little side note that princes at the time, princes of Wallachia, their average reign was only two years. I mean these guys were coming and going. It was it was hot and the musical chairs was just happening left and right because there was as soon as someone got installed and started doing something that the the you know the elite class and the and the trading class didn't like, they would work to undermine them and, and get them unseated and, and install the next guy until that guy displeased them. You know, so Vlad had trouble at home with internal provocateurs. He had trouble uh, trying to make uh, everyone happy and, and not get annihilated with the Ottomans on one side and, and Hungary on the other side. And then, of course, yeah, his, his two eldest sons were a couple hundred miles away um, under the watchful eye of a not very friendly sultan. It was interesting reading how he and his brother, how their paths diverged so drastically. Yeah. Well, yeah, to put it kindly, Radu was, uh, like I said, handsome and friendly, and he scored many points as a brown noser uh, while he was uh, a guest of the court, and Dracula was not. He um, was unhappy. He was pissed off to be perfectly frank. And so between Radu being everybody's favorite and just Vlad being angrier and angrier and rebelling more and more, he it was just isolated him completely and, and pretty, you know, he didn't even have his brother after a while as to commiserate with. It was just him by himself being held captive with the, you know, the threat of being blinded or killed if the Sultan ever had a, a bad day with his father. And this would be the 1450s, right? Yes. And things really put him over the edge, didn't they, uh, when when both his father and another of his brothers were killed, right? Yeah. So in reference to yeah my previous uh, statement about uh, inter- internal provocateurs inside Wallachia, Vlad had displeased some of the uh, elite class, and they uh, worked very hard to run them out of town. And when that didn't work, they allowed the, the sultan's men to come in. They just basically opened the gate and said, here, have at it. So his father was was killed and Mircha, his older brother, was buried alive, which was not uncommon in those days. And, um, you know, little Vlad, even though they'd been separated for several years, he, he loved his older brother very much. And, you know, I, I think he was having some trouble with his relationship with his father. But uh, I, I think you know, just that aside, just knowing that uh, a bunch of people conspired and, and had his father and brother killed, that was just like, that was it. He went like supernova angry and there was no turning back. All of this stuff is complicated. <laughs> Constant backstabbing, murder, battles, rape. It, it seems like Wallachia is being ruled by someone different on every page of your book. How amongst all of this chaos does Vlad Dracula take power? How does he do it? So uh, after the Ottomans killed his father and brother, Dracula, he was still in the Ottoman Empire. And although he was uh, kind of an unpleasant guest, he was still kind of – he was trusted by them. 
ultimately, at the end of the day, they, they, they saw him as an ally, even though he was an uh, unwilling ally. And so the person that took the throne after his father and brother were killed over time, sort of, well, I shouldn't say over time, it was probably like a year, but that person lost favor with the sultan. And um, Dracula had uh, had made an offer to the sultan that if the sultan would give him uh, enough um, military support, he would go in and take the throne back from that guy whose, whose name escapes me. Uh, like, you you are right, there there was a different prince every every couple of years there, and I've, I've already forgotten who came next. But yes, with the support of the Ottoman Empire, believe it or not, Vlad galloped into Wallachia and took the throne from this guy. And uh, he, he installed himself on the throne. And, and the sultan at first was like, okay, this is great. We got a friend of the court on the seat finally in Wallachia. And getting this invasion ready for Christian Europe should be pretty straightforward. Could you describe what Vlad looked like? Yeah. Um, many years later, uh, he spent some time in jail and he had already a reputation for being just ferocious and terrifying. But, you know, in jail, he he was kind of his wings were clipped. And so historians and and uh, portraitists started showing up. And that's how we know what he looked like. By those reports, he was short and stout, extremely strong. He had a like a beak nose and these bulging green eyes and, and puffy, oversized eyebrows. He just, uh, I guess, just looked terrifying you know he had resting terrifying face and um that was part of his whole aura anyone that didn't even know his reputation you walk in the room and you see this guy you're like oh i'm just gonna give this guy a wide berth so he's got all this pent-up rage all of this hostility seen a lot of terrible things in his life once he took power how did he hold on to it so he didn't. <laughs> he he was actually on the throne in three separate uh, sittings. Uh, his first sitting right after grabbing the throne um, ostensibly uh, on behalf of the Ottoman Empire, that only lasted a few months because – he immediately got into trouble with uh, with the Ottoman Empire and uh, and other folks in Wallachia who were not pleased to have Vlad Dracul's angry and vengeful son back in the picture. So, yeah, there, there was a there was a bit of time where he held onto that power and he he used that time to do a little house cleaning uh, and by that I mean killing of people that had anything to do with his father and brother's death. Uh, but then he uh, immediately had to flee again because uh, he was quickly unpopular at home and the Ottomans were getting a little testy and impatient with who they thought the guy that was going to be their guy was not initially being super cooperative and he had to flee. And so he, uh, he fleed to a, a region north up north called Moldavia, um, which is still goes by that name in this day. It's a part of Romania. And uh, he had a, he had some relatives up there, namely uh, the person who would later become Stephen the Great. And he kind of, he hid out there for a while. He finished his education. He somehow resisted the urge to turn around and, and, and go killing people immediately. He, he hung around, finished his education, you know, became a man or whatever. And yeah, so his, his first sitting was very short. It was the second sitting where uh, all of the fun happened. Yeah, let's talk about that fun. He develops a reputation for cruelty, which is pretty incredible since everyone else in this time and place also seem very cruel. What sets his cruelty apart from everyone else's? 
Well, and, and that's an important – you make an important point because he was extremely cruel and sadistic and a jerk. <laughs> but um, for that era, he, he was only slightly more sadistic than average when you look at what other – people were doing in terms of torture and you know military tactics in political circles it was not uncommon for if you had someone was giving you trouble you'd go in and you just wipe out their whole family because it wasn't enough just to, to kill them because a cousin or a, a sibling or a, a, one of their children might show up someday with a with a mind of, of revenge and so it was the easiest way to avoid that inconvenience was just to kill everybody. And that was just normal. I mean, that wasn't Wallachia or Eastern Europe. That was happening everywhere. You know, they were crucifying people before that even. There was uh, the, the Spanish Inquisition was unbelievably sadistic. So uh, we just want to set the scene here that Dracula was just fantastically terrifying and, and brutal, but uh, compared to those around him, he was only slightly worse. But after, after finishing his education and getting some support from the Kingdom of Hungary, because they were also uh, not super thrilled about uh, having the Ottoman Empire so close with a with a friendly face on the throne in Wallachia, uh, he turned around and, um, with some help, uh, managed to take his throne back. And this time he he hung on to it for just uh, under six years, I want to say. And um, this was the period where he really did all of the damage that he's known for today. He fortified his princely seat in uh, Targoviste, which is where the capital of Wallachia was. He built a couple of other forts. He was basically just fortifying the whole area because he knew he was about to incur the white-hot wrath of the Ottoman Empire. And um, he, he wasn't exactly on tight terms with the Hungarians either. So he was just kind of – he spent the time cleaning house, killing a lot more people that had offended him or irritated him in some way, but also fortifying his uh, kingdom for the upcoming battle with the Ottomans. And um, – in theory, he um, he should have had some help. You know, again, the Ottomans were were not making a secret of their plan to roll over Wallachia, Transylvania, and then just keep right on going into Christian Europe and you know, pr I guess all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. So you would think that other players in Europe would have kind of been on the same page and said, "Yeah, we gotta we gotta take care of this. It's time to it's time to mount a crusade." And and they did do that previously but when it came time for dracula to to stand up against the ottoman empire he had he had no help because everybody else in europe either they were indifferent or they had other stuff going on pressing stuff you know there were people having their own little wars and civil wars and border skirmishes and maybe um like the spanish they had just booted out the moors everyone had their own thing going on and um despite the overwhelming forces of the ottoman empire getting all geared up to come and take them they sent no help so it was it was poor vlad all on his own um but he did have the wallachians and he he did have some money and he hired some mercenaries and, and got some military forces together in addition to you know his his uh subjects and they uh they got themselves ready to take on the ottomans so in taking on the ottomans he was going to take the fight to them yeah well that's initially what happened because, you know, even at the height of their power, the Wallachians only had about 30,000 
uh, people in their military. Some of them were mercenaries. Some of them were paid and, and, and actual brawlers, but a lot of them were just farmers and other, you know, peasants that they just, you know, they shoved a, a sword in their hand and, you know, gave them a helmet and, and shoved them in the general direction of the, of the fight. So it's not really fair to say that he had 30,000 troops. But uh, and then meanwhile, the Ottoman Empire had 90,000 real life armed and fierce and trained fighters. So Dracula was crazy, but he wasn't so crazy as to think he he could go toe to toe with these folks. So he started some really uh, what ultimately became unbelievably effective uh, guerrilla warfare against the Ottomans. They were still on the on the Bulgaria side of the of the Danube River. The Danube separates Bulgaria from Romania or Wallachia at the time. And so they they crossed the river and they just started taking them out in little groups. They would ambush them. They would come galloping down a side road, kill a whole bunch of guys, and then run away before they could the, the Ottomans could muster a counterattack. And they they just kind of did that until it over time just started to actually wear away at the Ottoman military might and Christian Europe it was just unbelievable that it was just the underdog story of their lives that that Dracula was having this success but while he was doing this he was also perfecting his uh, favorite hobby and what he's known for impaling people so this is where the whole legend comes from Vlad the Impaler uh, he wasn't known as Vlad the Impaler as when he was alive, but that's the name he they gave him after his death. So he, uh, if he had the time and the and the wherewithal, he would take the slain Ottomans and impale them. And the way it was done in those days, what they did was they and, and I. I I suppose I should say this is a, a warning to people who have squeamish stomachs. Maybe just skip ahead a minute. But what they would do is they'd get a wooden stake, pretty thick one. They would grease it up, and then they would uh, insert it ever so slowly into the victim's anus and just kind of slowly guide it up through their body so as not to hit any internal organs, but also unbelievably painful and it would emerge from their bodies just you know below their shoulder blades so they are upright on a pike that is in the ground and they're they're just upright and it doesn't kill them right away they just suffer that way and you know they could suffer for up to a couple of days before they actually died it was the most sadistic vicious thing and 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 Vlad didn't even invent it but he certainly perfected it and this is how he became famous partly because of all the impalings and uh later on kind of a, a coup de gras of uh impaling when the Ottomans finally got to Targoviste I'm getting ahead of myself but Vlad had a a little surprise waiting for them before we get to that uh, because I don't want to forget what are the origins of the, the name Dracula? Uh, Dracula means son of Dracul, and uh, Dracul was the name that his father was given when he was um, inducted into the Knights Templar. And, you know, he converted from his um, Orthodox to Christian, and he was given the name Dracul, which means dragon. Although um, many centuries later, Bram Stoker decided to sort of reclassify that as devil. But anyway, so uh, Drac Dracula is son of the dragon. So yeah, I would love to hear that story about how he prepared for the oncoming onslaught of the Ottoman Empire. So again, Dracula, despite lots of success, taking out people in guerrilla warfare tactics, one final attempt by the Sultan. The Sultan, for a minute, just a minute, thought okay, this guy is giving me a lot of trouble. Let's just see if we can't calm things down. He sent an envoy 
to make an arrangement for some sort of ceasefire, but it was duplicitous and Vlad found out that they actually intended to grab him and haul him back to Constantinople and punish him for every all the trouble he's caused. So instead of talking with that peace envoy, he um, slaughtered them all and, of course, impaled them. So when that got back to the sultan, that was that was pretty much it. He, I mean, they they had been at odds for a while, but there was just like no turning back. There was Dracula was persona non grata. They were going to take him, and he had actually succeeded in in pissing off the sultan so much that he was going to personally lead this huge, this unheard of armada of Ottomans and just roll over Wallachia and, and take it on their way into Transylvania and presumably, you know, fillet <laughs> Dracula like a carp on the way. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder 
and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. So we're still in his second reign here, right? That, that six-year period. Correct. Yeah, when um, it became clear that Dracula was going to have to face this uh, military um, tsunami that was coming at him, he, he still knew, I mean, there was no way that they were going to go toe-to-toe. They were going to get annihilated. So he had no other choice but to just kind of like continue on with the guerrilla tactics. And, and, and again, it was uh, extremely effective. They were losing plenty of folks, but Dracula had some really big victories against these overwhelming forces. And part of it was that they knew the terrain much better than the Ottomans, but also growing up in the, um, in the Sultan's court, Dracula had become fluent in, in Turkish and he knew the Sultan and he knew, you know, how he thought, he knew his tactics. He, you know, he was just like the, the inside man there. And all of a sudden this guy's coming at him and, and Dracula knows all his tricks. So he did a lot of counterattacks that wore them down. There was a one famous attack called the night attack where Dracula dressed up as an Ottoman soldier and was able to get into the camp because he spoke Turkish fluently and, and went around and did some recon and came out and, and got all his force together. And they just charged in and were very successful in taking out a whole bunch of guys and Vlad almost uh, killed the Sultan himself. But um, he, uh, he got a little confused in the dark and attacked the wrong tent and the Sultan got away. But it was extremely successful and, again, uh, a huge blow to the sultan's men. Uh, but they were not cowed at all. They continued on their way to Targoviste, which is where the princely court is, uh, Wallachia's princely court. And so Dracula had no choice but to retreat at this stage because they were wildly outmatched. And so not wanting to just run away and do nothing, he, he made life absolutely miserable for the Turks. That summer was a particularly hot summer, so it was it, it was already uncomfortable. But Vlad and and his people they would poison water sources, they would burn down forests, they would either slaughter or herd away cattle. There was just there was just nothing for the Ottomans to uh, you know. There was no shade even sometimes. The Ottomans were just constantly hot and thirsty, and they were weakened by all the you know they they weren't eating well. And there was just you have to imagine ninety thousand people and the support crew that goes with that. There was just so many mouths to feed and so many resources necessary. And Vlad was making all of that very difficult. But you know they they marched on and they every once in a while a group of Wallachians would jump out kill a whole bunch of people again and and just leave and this just kind of went like that and also one of the earliest um, known uses of germ warfare Vlad got a whole bunch of people suffering from various diseases including the plague uh, dressed them up as Turks and just sent them in to mingle with the Ottomans and they just got a whole bunch of people sick and died and they you know that was without firing a single arrow it was just <laughs> brilliant and cruel. And um, yeah, so these, these guys were just stumbling along now, sick, thirsty, hot. The, they got real close to Targoviste, but um, before they got there, one of the final things that, that Vlad did was he'd been judiciously and happily impaling people all along, thousands and thousands of these Ottomans that they'd been sneak attacking in, in one way or another. So after a while, he had quite the collection of dead Ottomans on 
wooden pikes. So what he did was he and his men erected what was uh, described as a semicircle and, and quote-unquote forest of impaled Ottomans, uh, about 30,000 of them. So you can imagine Mehmed the Sultan, the, he's called Mehmed the Conqueror. He's marching up with the shadow of the former might of his military, but they're still determined to get to Targovich. They, they're walking up, their, their spirits are kind of snuffed out. They're not feeling great. And they see this forest of 30,000 dead bodies of their former comrades right in front of them. And it literally scared, scared them away. Like Mehmed himself, who was a well-known master of psychological warfare, he was just like, no, I'm done. And he turned around and went back to Constantinople. But uh, they, you know, they left enough military behind that Vlad couldn't just stay in Wallachia. So he had to retreat to the mountains. And um, the Ottomans were successful in taking uh, the throne away from him. And that was the end of his second reign. And they installed they installed another person on that throne. And guess who it was? It was Radu, his younger brother that they brought along. Radu and the and the Sultan had become friends over the years, uh, despite some very uh, complicated relationship. And so now Radu was the guy on the throne while Dracula was in full retreat. Yeah, that is very complicated. There must have been some resentment from Vlad towards his brother for cozying up to his enemy. Yeah, I mean, I, did, I wasn't able to find any details about their, you know, their relationship later in life. I'm assuming there was none because they were, after the first time Vlad left the Ottoman court as a teenager, the first time to take his throne back, I, I, don't, I couldn't find any record that the two of them were even ever again in the same room before Radu, uh, many years later, died. I believe it was uh, syphilis. Wow. So how does he get back on the throne for the third time? So uh, that didn't happen for a while. In fact, it was uh, more than 12 years before Vlad got his throne back. Uh, he uh, partnered up with the Hungarian Empire, and it's a very long and uh, complicated story with a lot of characters and a lot of, again, backstabbing and, and planning. And, and, and um, so Vlad eventually was taken prisoner by the Hungarians and uh, – uh, he was they, they trumped up some charges because uh, Vlad this whole time had been had kind of quietly well, not quietly he'd become a, a standout hero in the eyes of Christian Europe he was single handedly holding off the Ottoman Empire and so people knew his name now he was a living legend and and everybody was like you know popping champagne and then next thing they know he's in jail in Budapest well it was it was called Buda at the time and and so everyone was confused as to what had happened and and was just that they'd had trumped up charges. They forged some letters that were supposedly from Vlad, um, suggesting that he and the, and the Sultan were somehow in cahoots, even though Vlad had just finished killing tens of thousands of his soldiers. Um, so it was, it was an unbelievable story, but you know, even in, Modern in the modern area, it's possible for some very sketchy uh, details to, you know, eventually just become understood as well. That just happened. Let's move on. And um, that's kind of what happened then. People were very concerned and asked a lot of questions for a while, and then it was just kind of forgotten about. And Vlad ended up cooling his heels in in very fine surroundings, but nonetheless a prisoner for twelve years in in um, Hungary. And in the midst of all of this, there was a man from Hungary named. John Hunyandai, who who played a pretty important role in this giant drama. Yeah, 
you're right. He was the instigator. Um, I'm, I'm trying to keep the details to a minimum because there's so much going on. But yes, he was, he was the one that um, at first was teamed up with Vlad and they were going to finally take out the Ottomans. And then they made a secret deal on the side with the Ottomans and then decided to um, stitch up Vlad and, uh, at the same time. And so, yeah, John Hanyande in the, uh, was pretty much single-handedly responsible for betraying Vlad and locking him up. And um, meanwhile, they had uh, for this final push against the Ottomans, they had actually taken uh, uh, quite a bit of money from supporters like the Pope and, uh, you know, Venice and some other folks that were closer to being in the danger zone than other people in Western Europe. They'd given John a a lot of money to carry on his crusade. And then the crusade just kind of never happened. And then all of a sudden, Vlad was a prisoner. So John, you know, he had his own uh, political issues to deal with. But meanwhile, he was successful in taking Vlad off the board and installing yet another brother-in-law. There was never-ending sea of brother-in-laws <laughs> because of the, of the polygamy of the time. So every time someone um, lost a seat or got chased out, there was always a brother-in-law somehow related by blood. And that was all that was necessary. You just had to be re- related by blood from the male heir and and to take the throne. So there was there was no shortage of, of people. And uh, they installed their own guy uh, for a while until that guy became uncooperative. But in the meantime, you know, Vlad was off the board for 12 whole years and the Ottomans had plenty of time to recover um, and restore their might after Vlad had single-handedly worn them down to a, you know, a, a shadow of their former selves. Yeah, I completely understand the, the inherent difficulty of turning the story into a narrative. <laughs> I, I've, I know I've said this before on the show, but most of the stories I cover here have a similar arc in the sense that there's a murder or multiple murders, an investigation, an arrest, a trial. But here it's confusing. I mean, history over a large period of time with lots of political machinations driving things. Even I can't keep it straight. I mean, I would have to read directly from the book in order to, you know, to make sure I'm not giving it you know, the wrong name and the wrong chronology. But also, I was going from numerous different sources of information, and not a lot of them agreed with each other. So I kind of had to do, you know, some best guessing of, you know, piecing things together. And when I was completely confused, I just have to say that in the book. There's like, look, here are the three things that might have happened. We don't know, you know. I mean, this is what happens when you try to research something in the 15th century when uh, a lot of people most of them not super thrilled with with Vlad and his tactics were writing the history books. You said that a lot of people were very happy and believed that Vlad Dracula was almost single-handedly keeping the Turkish hordes from enveloping the rest of Europe. And then he's suddenly imprisoned. Do you have a a suspicion as to why? Um, Politically motivated, I assume? Uh, Well, yeah. You know, John Hanyende was... um, he actually he didn't want anything to do with this campaign against uh the ottomans he had his his sights set on becoming the uh holy roman emperor and in the meantime the king of hungary and uh, he was he was acting king of hungary or whatever you would call it at the time he would he in everything but crown he was he was ruling it over it but he wanted to lock that down right and then being sent away on this crusade you know he had been given plenty of money to do this and there was you know some tactical sense to it but he he didn't want to be in Wallachia fighting Ottomans he wanted to consolidate power and and you know finally take the throne so he already didn't want to be there but then on top of that they i guess the Ottomans just kind of made a, a back 
courtroom deal with him that he couldn't refuse that allowed him to he, – he wouldn't have to fight. He could go back home, you know, get the throne like he planned and get Vlad out of the picture all in one stroke. So that's that's what he did. Even being imprisoned for 12 years, the Ottomans didn't push any further into Europe? Well, eventually they pulled themselves together and they were able, and which is why Vlad reenters the picture. The Ottomans had their guy on the throne in Wallachia. There was a lot of skirmishes and, and uh, raids into Transylvania. So, you know, the Ottomans were just kind of creeping closer and closer and, and testing the, the waters. And, and finally, 12 years later, John was like, huh, we got to deal with this. So that's that's when Vlad and him unbelievably came to a, an agreement. Vlad heroically resisted the urge to just impale John in many creative ways, and instead, because he still wanted to get back to his kingdom, and 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 you know he was everything about him was getting to Wallachia, his homeland, and cleaning it up, and then ruling over you know as a king, but or prince, sorry. So yes, he was able to swallow his anger and team up with John uh, after so much bad blood. And the two of them, they went on a little PR campaign and uh, they somehow managed to get more money out of Italy. Uh, well, what was, you know, Italy, Rome and Venice, I should say. And uh, they geared up for uh, a new crusade to kick the Ottomans out once and for all. And then also in the process, Vlad would get his throne back. Was it easy to push them back? Uh, at first, they were they did have some success. They had some they had some immediate wins. They um, they managed to to get a, a very important uh, strategic defensive fort in Serbia and do some other successful raids. And after Dracula was kind of on a on a trial period, you know, they, they he was in a, on probation sort of. So he wasn't out doing this alone. He had chaperones you know john was with him at first and then john went back to hungary and then there was another guy keeping tabs on him that you know had no military experience but at least he wasn't crazy and so he was there to make sure keep vlad from doing too much murdering but eventually a time came it was like okay it's it's time for vlad to take his throne back and so with help from stephen the great his cousin from moldavia they just sort of converged uh, from opposite sides on on Targoviste with the princely court there and unseated the guy that was there. And uh, Vlad was again um, in charge. The Ottomans had been pushed back. And yeah, so he was, that was his third time on the throne. And then everybody, you know, they, they kicked back, had a few beers and like, all right, great, we're out of here. And then they just left. And so now Vlad is by himself, you know, with a, a drastically reduced military that you know weakened from years and years of just nonstop fighting from people from all sides, and um, yeah, the hung Hungarians went home, the Moldavians went home, except for um, Stephen the Great left behind uh, some bodyguards to kind of help out, but they were extremely weakened, and the Ottomans were still the Ottomans, and uh, Vlad only lasted a few months, and they 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 came in and they killed him. How did he die? We aren't sure. <laughs> That's one of the, the spots in the book where I have to say I, I have no idea. Here's what may have happened. Um, there's a lot of theories. Uh, what happened for sure is that he was found mutilated and decapitated near a um, a monastery that he went to frequently called Snogov, which is about 25 kilometers north of what is today's Bucharest. 
Um, he spent a lot of time there. He kind of turned it into a strategic defensive. You know, he, he fortified the monastery, which was kind of odd. But yeah, so um, in addition to hiding out there and going there to, you know, beg forgiveness for all of his um, murdering, uh, that's it was just kind of like a refuge for him. And that's where the Ottomans cut up with him. And yeah, they, they killed him and uh, took his head. And so Mehmed the Conqueror finally got Vlad's head. He was extremely relieved. And presumably, uh, so the head was probably on display for quite some time as a trophy uh, back in Constantinople. But um, they're not sure what happened if Vlad was killed by a guy that had pulled a, a Dracula and snuck into into the um, Wallachian camp disguised as a Wallachian soldier and killed Vlad. But I, I go off on my own theories here. How How does a guy... You know, after he's done the very messy job of decapitating a guy, get out of there with with the head of their leader, presumably covered in blood and not, you know, somehow get some pushback from the people standing around. Uh, there's another theory that he got killed by friendly fire just at the end of a, another battle that they were going to win. But uh, he got killed by friendly fire. And then, uh, yeah, and then the other one is that, you know, he just he just died in battle. But we don't know. And when we talk about friendly fire, it would have been what during this period? Well, uh, it was I, I think it was an arrow is what they um, oh right how right. they describe it. But uh, yeah, I think uh, he again Vlad was was um, in the habit of disguising himself as a Turk, and you know he spoke Turkish, and it might have been easy for one of his guys to mistake him for an enemy combatant and shoot him in the back uh, with an arrow. But we, we don't know that that's the case. As an expert in all things Romania and the go-to person for many years on Romania for the Lonely Planet Travel Guide, where do you suggest anyone listening who wants to go on a Dracula tour, where do you suggest they go? What, what are the best sites? So uh, there's there's plenty of spots to choose from. Some of them are extremely popular and some of them not so popular and kind of hard to get to. The most popular is probably Bran Castle, which is incorrectly called Dracula's Castle because that was not his castle. Um, they're not even 100% sure that he was ever inside that castle, but it was standing during Dracula's time. And he almost certainly was around it and went past it. During his uh, house cleaning, he did have to go up into Transylvania to kill some guys in, in Brasov, which is, uh, you know, Bron Castle is just outside of Brasov. So he, he'd got at least galloped past Bron Castle, and there's a theory that he might have uh, either spent the night there or been in prison there. No one's not really sure for a short time, but that was not his castle. But it is beautiful. It looks like a vampire lives there, you know, to this day. Um, and it's a very popular tourist destination and easy to get to in, in southern Transylvania. So um, like a half a million people go there each year and it, it is super cool. It's gone through a lot of renovations and expansions and it uh, it looks it looks like a it looks like a vampire lair. You know, it grows out of the top of this um, rocky formation. It kind of looks like it's organically turned from mountain into castle, like, a, you know, some dark wizard had just made it pop up out of the mountain. It, it's uh, very harmoniously built in into the mountain there. And, uh, you know, in, back in the uh, early 20th century, the very brief reign of Romanian royalty, they they fixed it up. They, they got some Western European furniture in there, but uh, it's still open as a, as a tourist site. Let's see, the next most popular place I guess it kind of drops off there. I mean, 
Vlad spent some time in, in Brasov, but he was usually only up in there to, to kill some guys. So, you know, while Brasov is associated with him, he, you know, he doesn't, there's no like monuments to him because he, every time they heard that he was coming, that was, that was bad news. Um, the next most popular place was Sigashwara, which is where Vlad was born. And he lived there until age three and the home that he was born in and lived in until age three is still standing. Uh, it's a restaurant. And Sigashora, uh, even on its own, is a fantastic. It's like a walled city, citadel type situation. It's been um, very, uh, very well renovated and, and cleaned up. Uh, it was kind of falling into disrepair, and it didn't get much love during the communist era. But they've, it's all fixed up and looks very fairy tale like now, and it's a very popular place. Uh, and it's well known for many other things, but also Vlad lived there from age zero to age three. The less popular sites, but um, more important to Vlad himself, are his uh, the the real Dracula's castle, which is called Pornar Citadel, and that is located in the hills uh, on the border between Transylvania and Wallachia. It's uh, it's not easy to get to. It's uh, on a not very well paved road that is you know has a mountain on one side. And some not very great, you know, driving to get it to the other side. So it's hard to get to. And then you have to climb more than 1,400 steps to get up there. There's like no escalator or anything, you know. So I think just the physical, the demanding, um, just the walk up there kind of uh, discourages a lot of people. It is not – you would think it would be because Vlad is considered a national hero in Romania to this day. You'd think it would be overrun with tourists, but it's not because, A, it's hard to get to unless you rent a car and, and you really, really want to get there. And B, you have to be uh, you have to be prepared to climb those fourteen hundred steps, or that's it. Um, but when, it's not like huge. It hasn't been restored. It's 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 ruins, but it's you know it's Dracula's castle. This is where he he built this place as a defensive kind of a you know medieval safe room, and he he hid out there and he outlasted a at least one siege there. Uh, so that was he's that that's a very important Dracula site that just doesn't get very many visitors. And the other place is Targoviste, um, the f- former princely court, the former capital of Wallachia. Um, it's a small, not super important town now, but the the princely court, the ruins of it are still there. Some of it's been um, restored to the best uh, of their abilities. There's a tower. There's ruins of the of the um, the palace itself and the grounds around it. There's a a church and some out uh, outer houses, you know, just support structures or just the foundations of of these structures, you know, because a lot of it is. I mean, we're talking about stuff that's 500 years old. I'm amazed that any of it's still standing. But you know, the the fact that some of it is still standing and recognizable is kind of a, a testament to how strong they built stuff back then. You know, I can't imagine anything, you know, any buildings or houses here in Minneapolis, uh, ever being, you know, around in 500 years. There's no way. So I have to ask you about this. The Dracula we know today is a black cape-wearing vampire, far different than the real-life man. Can you explain how that happened over time, how he transitioned from medieval warrior to a gothic vampire? Sure. So, as I mentioned earlier, Dracula, for all of his um, failings, is still considered a hero in Romania. He defended uh, Wallachia and sort of a little bit Transylvania against the unbelievable, overwhelming forces of the Ottoman Empire. So 
in in that corner of Europe, he's considered a hero. Everywhere else, he's considered a, a maniac. Um, and that's mostly because after he died, I mean, he was a living legend while he was alive. But after he died, his legend grew, and then things, um, you know, things sort of uh, got exaggerated and warped, uh, as they often do. Uh, the chroniclers uh, tended to be people who weren't necessarily friends of Dracula, like um, German writers who, you know, Dracula was well known for tormenting German settlers in Transylvania and. And lining them up and impaling them. So when they wrote about Dracula, it was not in a very friendly tone. Uh, it was basically all fiction, uh, just for shock and awe to to sell, um, you know, their their little stories. But these, uh, you know, these little pamphlets, there was no fact checking. There was no one standing around going, that never happened. And you know, and and even in this day and age, fiction gets spread around as facts. And if you say it often enough, people start to take it as as fact. And so that was the same was true back then. Dracula was outside of Romania was was after all this um character assassination work by various writers far far away decades after he died you know writing these stories that weren't remotely true so that's how he got uh, known as this vicious crazy bloodthirsty person and one of the stories was that he liked to dip his bread in human blood and so many centuries later Bram Stoker is doing research for his vampire book and um he, he came upon a uh very old I guess it was like a journal or a report from an ambassador or uh you know dignitary that from from England that was in Romania um and had written about Dracula and his exploits and this is where Bram Stoker not only discovered his name and and decided to sort of misinterpret it as the devil instead of uh, Son of the Dragon, but also undoubtedly this is where Bram Stoker learned of this story about Vlad, you know, dipping his bread in blood and and he ate human parts and you know none of this stuff that actually ever happened. You know, he wasn't a cannibal. He was crazy, but he wasn't a cannibal. And so you know, inspired by all this, and you know, there was already some vampire lore that had you know was well known, and it's this sort of like crossed over and was conveniently, you know. Um, cooperative with all that and so he decided to name his uh, his antagonist Dracula after this you know he had a, a famous bloodthirsty lunatic real life person to to base this on and that w- that was just a convenient little backstory it's like okay so um the the real Dracula Vlad the Impaler never really died he just drank enough blood over the centuries to sustain himself and and now he you know he comes to light again when he's rediscovered uh, in Transylvania when he decides to take a little trip over to jolly old England and start sucking blood there for a little variety so yes it was all very convenient and and that's the the easy and convenient story but now there has been many books and um theories in the years since that Bram Stoker may not have been as well read into Dracula as everyone thought i mean he he undoubtedly knew of his existence but there's a lot of material and and proof out there that Bram based his character more on just the existing vampire canon and hit the physical description of the vampire Dracula kind of fits the uh, physical description of um, of an actor, um, Henry Irving, that uh, Bram Stoker had been working with for a while. He was tall and gaunt and, you know, just kind of a little sinister looking. And that's kind of like how Dracula looked. But also that's kind of how all the vampires at the time were described in, in you know, in fiction. Uh, vampire fiction had started 
long before Brahm wrote his book and so he had a lot of like existing canon to work from and so it's it's thought that maybe he just pulled from that rather than the the legend of Vlad the Impaler. Interesting. And Hollywood really changed it drastically from Stoker's original version. Well, yeah, for the time Dracula was the, the novel was extremely scary and unnerving, but we all sort of kind of it takes more to shock people over the decades and uh, I think every time Dracula was reinvented or or put out in a different form he you know as you said he he uh, it started as as the novel and then it became a touring live production you know theater production and then Hollywood got a hold of it and and then made a movie out of it and each time they kind of gave him added a few character traits to make him a little bit more scary just because um, the original Dracula wasn't quite scary enough and they wanted to make sure that people were terrified. And so by the time the uh, the movie came out, there was uh, there was not only powers and, and a backstory that, that didn't line up with the novel but had nothing to do with Vlad the Impaler anymore. They had gone way off even the, the fiction of Vlad the Impaler. But um, nonetheless, he was still called Dracula and there was that association. I'd love to to see an accurate movie about Vlad the Impaler. That story is is far more interesting to me, honestly. I know, right? Well, and I think that you know, I I I, I mentioned this in the book, kind of offhanded, but it's it's probably true that just from reading the novel and then also reading about the real Vlad the Impaler, it's pretty clear that Vlad the Impaler was not only a lot more interesting, but he also killed way more guys than than Dracula the Vampire. I mean, this guy was he he was an entire he was a character. I, I think a, a real life uh, movie about him. It, it wouldn't even it couldn't even be a movie. There's just too much. It would it would be a fantastic uh, at least a miniseries. And I know. There is a uh, a Dracula series that's um, in the works. So, uh, and again, this is going to be Dracula the Vampire, not necessarily Vlad the Impaler, but hopefully some of that Vlad the Impaler backstory will make it into that and and be somewhat accurate. But no, I'm I'm with you. I'd love to see a, as as best as we know an accurate representation of the life of Vlad Dracula. Just you know, don't eat any big meals right before <laughs> going to see it. Right. Because it will be disgusting. <laughs> well, your account of how Vlad impaled his enemies is, is far more terrifying to me than a fictional blood-sucking monster. Yeah, comparatively, that's a pretty chill way to go, right? Just have your blood drained from a, you know, a, a, a gentlemanly vampire rather than being cut in half and then you know impaled or whatever, and then left to to die slowly over forty-eight hours. I mean, it doesn't even compare. <laughs> no. No, it doesn't. So you have a website and a podcast, right? Uh, tell us about those. So uh, I do have a website where you can find all this stuff. It is my very difficult to spell name dot com. So uh, I'll spell it L E I F P E T T E R S E N dot com. Lifepetterson dot com. That's where you can find details about backpacking with Dracula and my most recent book, uh, Throwing Up: Notes from Thirty Five Years of Juggling. Uh, I've been a juggler since I was a little kid and decided to do a, a juggling memoir. Um, but also just some, you know, any my resume basically and some clippings and stuff like that. But I also uh, I've uh, even though I'm not doing much in the travel media and marketing sphere anymore, I still do co-host a podcast on that topic. It's called 
Passport Travel Marketing and PR podcast. And uh, we talk about topics and related to like destination marketing. It's, it's a lot of tourism inside ball. Probably wouldn't appeal to people that don't have some sort of marketing or PR role uh, in, in regards to destination marketing. But I, I do co-host that. And yeah, you know, I've, I've been a, a pretty busy world traveler ever since my late teens. And, you know, I'm, that's uh, going on 30 years and uh, yeah, that's uh, that's where you learn most of it about me. Um, LifePetterson.com. I also have an old blog that I just started to resurrect. It's called KillingBatteries.com. I'm also found by my name on Twitter, Life Pedersen, um, and also on Instagram. But it's the other way because someone stole Life Pedersen. So on Instagram, I'm Pedersen Life <laughs> because some guy registered Life Pedersen and then posted one photo and never went back again. But I still couldn't get the name. So I'm Pedersen Life on Instagram. And if you want to buy the book, it's on Amazon. And also, if you happen to be in Minneapolis, lots of local bookstores have it here, too. But uh, the easiest way probably for most of you to get it is on Amazon. Just uh, give a search for Backpacking with Dracula if you don't want to try to remember how to spell my name. (laughs) Right. Well, perfect. Thanks again, and happy Halloween. All right. Thank you. You too. Again, I've been speaking to Life Pedersen, author of Backpacking with Dracula, on the trail of Vlad the Impaler Dracula and the vampire he inspired. This has been another episode of the most notorious podcast, broadcasting from every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.